So these, these scriptural discoveries um, really altered the developing identity of the Adventist faith, and um, they began to recognize they had been con- called to continue giving a prophetic message to, his, to the world. The work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary was preparatory to his return. Their message had a singular present truth significance. We'll talk about more of that in a, in a little while. And they'd been called out of Babylon in a continuation of the Reformation. These were all concepts now that were gathering in the minds of these people. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression here. At this point, there is no organized Adventist group of believers. Okay? This is a very, very scattered, um, helter-skelter. You can't even call it a movement yet. You really can't. I mean, not, this, not these ideas. We're talking about a handful of people that were getting this type of a self-identity. Imagine you being the only one or only one in your county or state that is getting this idea that, man, this is the message for the world. And the rest of the Adventists are sort of like ho-hum. Let's just stop here and back up a little bit. If I can, if I can sort of paint the picture for you. We know why the Protestant Reformation came out of the Christian church at large, Right? out of the Roman Catholic Church. Christianity fractured, at least Western Christianity, fractured with the Protestant Reformation. We know that there was a coming out, right? And, and the Protestant Reformers left the church on issues that are, were you know, significant issues. There now has been, in the Millerite movement, another coming out now of the, really, of the Reformation, of Protestantism. Because the churches of Protestantism, where these believers largely came from, rejected the idea that the world was going to get worse until Jesus came to save us. They were in love with the idea that the world was going to get better until we had a millennium of peace here on earth. That was the prevailing Christian view. And if you read the story of of the Harmon families being disfellowshipped from the Methodist Church, the Casco Street Methodist Church in Portland, Oregon, uh, Portland, Maine, you will, you will see that, that this idea of the second coming was just intolerable to them. I'm not sure exactly why, except it wasn't, it wasn't common. It wasn't, they didn't agree with it. And, um, and that story has all the intrigue of any church politics today. <laughs> um, the, how the, you know, the the leaders of the church didn't tell the rest of the church. They just sort of told a few select leaders to come to the church for the meeting, and they had the business meeting, and they voted everyone out, and then they didn't want to tell anybody because they knew the Harmon family had a lot of influence. And this is the experience that over and over was repeated across the Millerite scene as people were kicked out of their church for simply believing in the second coming of Jesus. If you want to see the impact that Adventism has had today, one of the significant impacts is that it's no longer in Christianity that foreign of a concept that Jesus is going to come to end the world. I mean, a lot of Christians today accept that. Now, they may have some, some interesting futurist versions of it that we don't have, but um, it's, the Christian world has changed in a great degree since that time. So, the Millerites now come out of the um, Protestant world, so it's sort of like a Second coming out, and some people have even suggested that this, um, the expression in Revelation 14 where it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, was denoting the two falls of Babylon. One, the fall 
wherein the Reformation came out of the church, the mother church, and the second, the fall, wherein the children of the mother church rejected the biblical message and there was another coming out um, in the Millerite movement. Okay, so we know it's a fairly small group of people that comes now out of the Christian world. They have no meeting houses. They have no organization, no structure, no paid clergy, none of those things, nothing. They have nothing. They just have a common set of beliefs. Then October 22 happens, the final disappointment. Most of them split completely. A few of them still keep saying, well, we're going to keep studying the prophecies. And um, by this time that we're talking about, and we're talking maybe about 1845, 1846, this period of time when there was a lot of development going on of these doctrines, these teachings, by this time, the vast majority of them have decided that October 22 was a mistake. Okay? The vast majority are going to never accept the visions of Ellen White as being accurate. The vast majority are never going to accept the sanctuary message as an explanation of what happened on October 22. And they're not going to accept the uh, Sabbath as, as a message for God's end-time people. The vast majority of the Millerites. They're sometimes later in Ellen White's writings referred to as first-day Adventists. Of course, that would be after the, we became seventh-day Adventists. At this point, they're just the Advent believers. And where there might be one or two or three people, Edson, Bates, Ellen Harmon, James White, a small handful, literally a handful. There's probably about 25,000 active Adventists that are not in this category. You see what's happening? Do you understand? Most of the, most of the Adventists would go on to form what we think we know today as the Advent Christian Church, um, which today doesn't have very many more members than it did then. And this group of four or five or six people, sort of with this idea over here and that idea over there, would eventually become the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which would in fact, be the one fulfilling Revelation 10 and Revelation 14 and would grow to be the fastest growing Christian denomination um, because it's God's message. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, I just want you to sort of see what's going on. This isn't like there's a great big group of people that are getting this identity. These are a few people that are starting to recognize their place on God's stage. One time I was in Ellen White's home in Battle Creek, in the historic Adventist village. And as I was just, as I was looking at the house and grounds and just reflecting on the life of Ellen and James White, there's one thing that came across very powerfully to my mind. And that is that the Advent movement did not become a great movement because these were so extraordinary people. Rather, they became extraordinary people because the message they had was God's message. And as I sat there, I was just like, wow, like God doesn't need extraordinary, gifted, talented, you know, all the superlatives people. The message was not made great by great people being attached to it, the people attached to the great message became giants because the message is that great, that powerful. And it really taught me a lesson. You know, sometimes we think that it's all a movement. It's about, in, you know, maybe charisma or 
abilities, and certainly God gave them many abilities, and there were many miracles. But what was really important was the message, this small group of people, four or five people, in the face of the rest of the Millerites who were not ever going to accept it. This small group of people would end up with a worldwide impact that still continues today. So their, their sense of identity continued to be shaped by Scripture as they began to see who they are. Um, they'd been called to continue giving a prophetic message to the world. Their message was of singular, present truth significance. They had been called out of Babylon in a continuation of the Reformation. Now, what are they going to tell the world, though? So you get to Revelation chapter 10 and you decide this means us. But what are we supposed to tell the world? Are we just supposed to repeat again October 22, 1844? Are we supposed to repeat the prophecies? You know, that's what the, that's what the message had been up to that time, right? For the most part, the message had been an exposition on Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8 and 9, right? Is that what we're supposed to say? Is that what we're supposed to tell the world? Well, that's part of it. But there, the God would give them a lot more to say than just what had been given up to 1844. Most of the Adventists, like I was just saying, most of the Adventists are in a different camp, still expecting the end of the 2300 days, prophecy in the future. They're, they're of the, they don't believe the shut, door is shut yet. In other words, they think that Christ did not leave where he was on October 22. Um, but there's a small group, growing group, that's um, beginning to have some, um, some, some sort of traction among themselves. About the same time that Edson gained this new view of the sanctuary cleansing, just after the disappointment, an important theological change was taking place in a company of Adventists in Washington, New Hampshire. A number of them, under the endeavors of, of Rachel Oaks, a Seventh-day Baptist, began to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. Now, some of you are, have probably heard the story of how Rachel Oaks, you know, the, the Adventist minister, was preaching that day in the little church, and Frederick Wheeler, and um, much like they still do today, you know, the church members would greet the pastor after the service, Right? And um, as Rachel Oaks is leaving after the service, she basically confronts Pastor Wheeler and says, yeah, but what about the Sabbath? I'm paraphrasing the conversation, but, you know, why don't you teach the Bible Sabbath, essentially? And um, Frederick Wheeler began to study it and very quickly determined that, in fact, this Sister Oaks was right, that there was something to this Sabbath truth. Um, and so Frederick Wheeler became the first Adventist minister to accept the Bible Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath. About the same time, another, um, another minister by the name of T.M. Preble, um, also a Millerite, uh, he accepted this, the Sabbath as well. He was in New Hampshire. And in February of 1845, so this is you know, a few months after the disappointment, February of 1845, he publishes his tract under the short title of a tract showing that the seventh day should be observed as the Sabbath instead of the first day according to the commandment. Okay? And so um, this tract was read by none other than Joseph Bates. <laughs> Joseph Bates reads Preble's tract, and he is, wow, like this is, this is heavy stuff, right? And so... He, um, he first reads it in 1845 that the seventh day is the Sabbath, but it took him almost a year. While he sort of accepted it right away, it took him almost a year to, become to come to the point where he was 
he was going to take this message to the ends of the world. In fact, it says, um, it was not until the summer of 1846 he became firmly and irrevocably settled in his conviction. It was later this latter year that he brought to James and Ellen White the Seventh-day Sabbath, which they soon accepted. He, of course, wrote um, his pamphlets on the Sabbath. And it was, about, it was in the same year that Bates published the first of a number of pamphlets that were to come through his, from his pen through the years. So Joseph Bates reads uh, T.M. Preble's article, which was not yet, in fact, it hadn't even yet been published as a tract. It was first published as an article in one of the papers. And in August of 1846, he brought out a 48-page pamphlet called The Seventh-day Sabbath, A Perpetual Sign. And um, in this pamphlet, he states that the reading of the Preble article convinced him of the Sabbath in the spring of 1845, but adds, contrary views did after a while shake my position some, but I feel now that there is no argument nor sophistry that can becloud my mind again this side of the gates of the Holy City. So his mind was made up on the Sabbath issue. And um, in the first edition of Bates' um, tract pamphlet, on the uh, Seventh-day Sabbath, the perpetual sign, Bates builds his argument for the Sabbath almost exclusively on the premise that the Sabbath was reinstituted at creation and reenacted in Exodus 20, that the Ten Commandments are the moral rule for Christians and the Seventh-day Sabbath is therein commanded. He touches briefly on the prophetic aspect when he says, um, he observes in his historical sketch of the change of the Sabbath, the prophet Daniel describes the little horn as thinking to change times and laws. Now, this is the first time I want you to just sort of see what's going on here. Um, Rachel Oates and the Seventh-day Baptists believed that the ceremonial law had been done away at the cross, not the moral law. That the Ten Commandments were still binding. That the seventh day was the Saturday and was the, still the Sabbath and that we should keep it. Okay, that's, what, that's how the Sabbath came to us. Already it's becoming adapted into the larger worldview of Adventism, even though it's just by one person here, Joseph Bates, as he says, oh, wait a minute. We've got the, the Seventh-day Baptist view of the Sabbath. We've got the Adventist understanding of prophecy. And what do you know? That little horn of Daniel chapter 7 was going to think to change times and laws, right? And so already the Sabbath, in that first tract, Sabbath, a, 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 a perpetual sign, um, that first tract is already getting adapted into the, into the fabric of what would become the Adventist eschatology and Adventist understanding. You know, you can't just separate the Sabbath from the rest of the Bible. I mean, you can, we can find the Sabbath as the center of so many things. Of course, Jesus is the center of the Sabbath, right? But here, Joseph Bates, for the first time, shows that this change of the Sabbath was also predicted in prophecy. The little horn of Daniel 7 would seek to change times and law. That's talking about the Sabbath. That was a new concept. And it would take somebody who had been a Millerite, who had been a, study, a student of the prophecies, to begin to see how God was putting these pieces of a puzzle together and how they fit. It was pretty exciting. One piece after another were coming together and the pieces of the puzzle fit together. It was as if they had all been together once and then taken apart. You think? Maybe. Bates asks his readers, now he's writing mostly to the Adventists, many of them who believed that there was still a, an event to take place in the future, October 22 had been a mistake. He writes his Adventist uh, 
Readers, now the second Advent believer has professed confidence, all confidence in Daniel's visions. Why then doubt this? So he actually asks for them to consider the Sabbath on the basis of the fact that, hey, we believe Daniel, right? We believe Daniel 7. That's sort of elementary school stuff for us. We believe Daniel 7. Chimes and laws have been changed, or at least attempted to be changed. In the second edition of his tract, uh, Bates builds upon the prophetic argument for the Sabbath, not by simply briefly uh, referring to Daniel chapter 7, but also by um, explaining how the Sabbath fits into the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14. Now we're getting really integrated, right? Um, And he sees, for example, that there's a contrast between God's Sabbath and the mark of the beast, which has been a distinguishing feature of our preaching since that time. The substance of Bates' argument to the Advent believers is this. The great book of Revelation is the foundation of all Adventist preaching. We have believed and preached that the message, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come, met its fulfillment in the preaching of the Millerite movement. The message of the second angel who proclaims that Babylon has fallen and whose message is echoed by another angel in the 18th chapter of Revelation that declares, come out of her my people, also met its fulfillment in the Millerite movement. Up to this point, Adventists of every persuasion, unless they had turned back on the preaching of the Millerite movement, could agree. Now, declares Bates, a third angel follows after these two. His message is a warning against receiving the mark of the beast. And those who do not receive that mark are described immediately in this language. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Why should the Advent believers give obedience simply to the first two of these three messages? He was a pretty sharp guy. Like, and he understood, of course, the times he's living. We read that now we don't understand why he's saying this. But he understood that larger group of Advent believers. They agreed on their understanding of the first two messages. Now he's offering them an understanding of the third message, but it requires they accept another biblical teaching, and that's the teaching of the Seventh-day Sabbath. So even in 1846, these principal, three principal pioneers, Joseph Bates and James and Ellen White, were leaders of nothing that faintly resembled a church or an organization. In fact, they didn't even they had no intent of ever starting a church or an organization. Um, <coughs> they and many of their colleagues would have been and would be, uh, in the case of their colleagues, um, opposed to such an idea in the future. Um, but by 1848, they began having what they called Sabbath conferences. I don't know if you've heard or studied any of these Sabbath conferences. But this constitutes the very first evidence of more or less well-defined groups of believers who had a, um, a similar, at least, approach to studying and understanding the prophecies and the, um, the history of Adventism. Um, and at best, maybe a couple hundred of people were involved in the Sabbath conferences. This was not a large group of people, even by 1848. But they were involved because Joseph Bates, James White, now Ellen White, had been traveling from group to group, place to place, and using arguments that would be understood by the, by the Millerite movement at large, the Advent believers at large, to try to help them understand. Right now, it's really three main ideas. They're trying to help them understand the under, what happened in 1844, 
understand the sanctuary message, understand the Sabbath. And so um, these, those first years after the Great Disappointment, these three pioneers were the leaders or rather promoters of ideas and theological views. And the next step in the developing theology of Sabbath-keeping Adventists was the discerning of a relationship between the Sabbath and the shut door. And um, in other words, the relationship between the Sabbath and the sanctuary the Sabbath and what had happened in October 22, 1844, which they still referred to as the shut door. Um, the relationship discovered was such as to give added force to the Sabbath and to provide a way of escape out of the restricted conception of salvation implicit in their first understanding of the um, shut door. And um, this came largely as a result of a vision which Ellen White had, which tied the sanctuary and the Sabbath together. Um, both of them had been taught already individually uh, by various individuals. But notice this uh, description of her vision. In this vision, she was taken off to the sp- in the spirit to the city of the living God. She saw that the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus uh, relating to the shut door could not be separated, and that the time for the commandments of it and that the time for the commandments to sh- of God to shine out with all their importance and for God's people to be tried on the Sabbath truth was when the door was opened in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where the ark is containing the Ten Commandments. Okay, get, what's, get the picture here. What she, what, she, what she saw in vision is that this was not coincidence that the Sabbath is now being understood as the sanctuary is being understood. There's actually a, a relation between them. You remember in Revelation, excuse me, Revelation chapter 11, John sees into the heavenly sanctuary, and for the first time, this is the, the time of the seventh trumpet, for the first time, the sanctuary is open in heaven, and what article of furniture does John see? The ark of his testimony. The ark of his testimony, specifically on the Day of Atonement, as the door to the most holy place is opened, there's the ark, there's the mercy seat, there's the law of God, and there is the Sabbath. And so there's a link between God's people entering the most holy place and God's people understanding the Sabbath. Does this make sense? These are tied together in their thinking now for the very first time. Um, There's a relation between them. Um, The time for the commandments of God to shine out and for God's people to be tried on the Sabbath truth was when the door was opened in the most holy place of the heaven sanctuary where the ark is containing the Ten Commandments. She also saw that this door was opened in 1844 when Jesus shut the door in the holy place and opened the door in the most holy. And she quotes Revelation 3, 7, and 8. Since then the commandments have been shining out to God's people and they are being tested on the Sabbath question. As the door opened in the most holy place, the light from the law of God shone onto God's people and the Sabbath became a testing question for His people. It's very interesting. The Sabbath would become, of course, even more integrated into our thinking, the seal of God and eschatology, last day events and all that. But um, what I think is very fascinating is that it would come to the point where Seventh-day Adventists would come to see more in harmony with the Seventh-day Baptists than they did in harmony with the first-day Adventists. Isn't that interesting? Do you realize that, I think it's in the 1870s, 
1870s, James White was a voting member of the Seventh-day Baptist, their version of the GC session. And there, they had a representative as a voting member of ours. There was even things written. At one point, James White encouraged early Adventists, and this is early, early days of organization, so there's, you know, there's, I don't, but he encouraged Adventist pioneers to go, if there were places where the Seventh-day Baptists were working to start up a church, that we would go to towns where they weren't first. We would prioritize. It's very interesting to me to see how pivotal the early Adventists began to see the, sa- the Sabbath truth as a test for God's people. Um, and they began to see a lot of this um, maybe a little more affinity to the Seventh-day Baptists who brought it to them than they would even to the Millerites from whom they had come and whom had been their previous brethren. From that time on, from October 22, 1844 on, the commandments have been shining out to God's people and they're presented, they're, uh, presented as a test. So the Seventh-day Adventists now have developed three major positions, and these are still, you might say, three major positions that we have today. One is the doctrine of the literal, personal second advent of Christ. This doctrine was re- retained essentially as preached in the Millerite movement, except for the element of definite time. In other words, Seventh-day Adventists would no longer believe that Jesus was coming at a certain date or time that we could set. His coming is imminent. We believe He's coming soon. And that includes, by the way, um, you know... There's, there are many different versions of setting time today. Um, some people don't do it with prophecies that are like, well, it's going to happen a certain year. Some people do it. I'm going to get off the subject here. But um, the principle is we don't believe in definite time. There's no more message of definite time after October 22, 1844. Um, the time element in that movement had been the 2300-day prophecy, but our fathers, by their new interpretation of that prophecy, took from it any possible use as a key to unlock the mystery of the date of Christ's advent. That is why some of the Adventists from the very beginning have been singularly free from the disheartening and embarrassing mistake of attempting to set a definite time for the second coming of the Lord. I wish that was ultimately true for every Seventh-day Adventist. It's not, it's not then, but as a, as a denomination, it's true. Um, now, the first-day Adventists, on the other hand, the Advent Christians, they went through a long history of many years of continuing to try to understand and re-understand October 22 and um, 2300-day prophecy and continued setting times. Some of that bled over into the Seventh-day Adventists because there was still some, you know, obviously uh, people knew each other and on all that. Um, so in early years, Ellen White writes a fair bit about time setting and people that are setting time. But it wasn't from the Seventh-day Adventist group. It wasn't from the group who had come to understand the sanctuary's explanation of what happened in 1844. The second major position that um, Seventh-day Adventists had developed by this time is the doctrine of the Sabbath which received its first acceptance by a little group of Adventists in 1844 in Washington, New Hampshire, under the simple teaching of the binding claims of the law of God. But now the Sabbath truth has been expanded to include an understanding of the seal of God, an understanding of the message of warning against the mark of the beast, an understanding of the, um, you know, the times... Uh, being changed, times and laws being changed in Daniel chapter 7. Understanding of worshiping God, the Creator, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, and so so forth. So the Sabbath doctrine now begins to have its significance as a part of present truth, a testing, sealing message for the last days of earth's history. And um, this, would, this, would gra- this would very much impact their identity and what they understood Adventism to be. Do you understand 
that if you believe that the Sabbath is a, an, going to be an issue in the last days and which people will be tested and you'll choose between who you will serve, the Sabbath has a higher significance to you than if you simply, well, as long as we believe one day a week, as long as we keep seven, you know, one and seven, as long as we keep... Tw- you understand the difference? They were seeing the Sabbath as not just the law of God. They were seeing the Sabbath as being present truth for today because it's what people are going to be tested on whether or not they're going to be loyal to, loyal to God. You know, some people ask me the question, well, why is the Sabbath a test? You know, why can't, why can't it just be any other test? And my simple answer to that is that the Sabbath is a test and the Sabbath is the seal of God for one primary reason. All of the rest of the Ten Commandments make logical sense. There's only one reason you would keep the seventh-day Sabbath rather than the first or third or fifth or whatever. The only reason is because God said. And therefore, by obeying, we are acknowledging His authority in our lives. You see, there's nothing wrong with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only reason that it was sin to eat of it was because God said so. The serpent ate it, he was fine. Eve ate it, she was fine. Adam ate it, he was fine. There was nothing toxic, poisonous, you know, nothing. It was decent, good fruit, obviously looked pretty, tasted good. The only thing that was different between that tree and the rest of the trees, God said so. So when we obey, not because it's logical, but because God said so, we demonstrate our submission to His authority in our lives, right? That's why the Sabbath is the sign of God's people in the last days, because it's simply based upon God's authority. We're going to obey God's Word, not because we think it makes sense. A lot of people today have this idea. There's a bunch of different theologies today, even inside Adventism. One of the theologies says, if I don't understand it, I shouldn't do it. Have you ever seen parents with kids like that? And they want to know why, and you've got to reason with them, and if they don't understand it, then they're not going to obey. Um, I am a firm believer that God will make everything clear to us in His time. But I'm also a believer that God expects us and God asks us to obey, not because we always understand, but because He said so. If he says it, if it's clear in God's word, if it's a plain thus saith the Lord, God said it, I believe it, that's good enough for me, right? But there's a lot of Christians today who operate under the principle instead that if I don't understand it, then I'm not going to do it. There's another whole set of Christians that operate in the principle, if I don't feel it, I'm not going to do it. Have you ever heard of this kind of, sort of a theology of almost a holy flesh theology of spontaneous victory or spontaneous obedience? Like when, when you're meant to obey... God's just going to take all desire for sin away from you. God's going to take all... If, you, if you're not supposed to drink coffee, God's just going to remove desire for it. Not if you've ever heard of that. But it, it exists in various degrees, even within Adventism. It's like, um, why would God give you an impression or a feeling when you don't follow what the Bible says plainly in the Word of God? You know what I'm saying? Um, why is God going to give you that? Well, is the, they say, I'm not convicted, so therefore I shouldn't obey. Convicted? Like, do you understand what the Bible teaches? Yeah, well, I'm not convicted. What's conviction? You're supposed to feel something? It's supposed to be some fuzzy wuzzies or something? I mean, 
What's that? If God's word says it, we obey. And if there's situations in our lives where it's not very clear, then he'll give us some feelings if we're willing to obey where it is clear. You know what I mean? But um, the Sabbath is a test of God's authority in our lives. There's a lot of righteousness by feelings and righteousness by this and righteousness by something else, but God wants us to experience righteousness by faith, which is simply based on God's word. I choose, I believe, and I act upon it. Um, That's my opinion anyway. The third major position of the Seventh-day Adventists now becomes the doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary, which explained the disappointment, and now it takes shape as a well-defined tenet interlocked with the doctrine of the Sabbath. And, of course, many of our other doctrines. The Sabbath, the sanctuary, really demonstrates uh, many, many of our, of our doctrines. So let's look at the identity that's developing now. Um, this developing identity is now containing a Sabbath sanctuary message um, that's emphasizing the eternal nature of God's law. With a correction in their view of the shut door, they now saw their mission to take these unique biblical teachings to the rest of Christendom and to the world through angels' messages. And if they had discovered God's last day message, guess what? They must also be God's last day people. And then they started to look at verses like Revelation twelve seventeen. The idea of a remnant had not been new to them. They had, they had had the idea of a remnant coming right out of the disappointment. There's a bunch of people that went, and there's a remnant that stayed faithful, right? Now they read Revelation 12, 17, and um, Bates and others began writing about how, wow, this is a remnant of the apostolic church that God is raising up in the last days with the same message that Jesus taught. Um, talk about a powerful sense of identity. I tell people today, you know, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian because I'm a disciple of Jesus. I want to believe what Jesus believed. I want to teach what he taught. I want to live as he lived. That's why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, because I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the closest to living, teaching, believing how Jesus lived, taught, and believed. It's as simple as that. I'm a disciple of Jesus, okay? But when these Millerite or early Adventists, Seventh day Adventists now, saw that the prophecy actually predicted that after the 1260 years, there would rise up again a remnant that reflected, that was a part, a contiguous piece of the early church. And they realized that's us, we're called to be that people. Don't you think it gives a powerful sense of identity? You know, recently I was, I was reminded again of some of, the, some of the controversies in Christianity. Um, there are people that go around and they, they disparage Christianity for its many crimes against humanity. And they look at the evil that's been done through the church through the years. A lot of people have been hurt. And they talk about the Catholic Church and they talk about how it was doctrine that divided and how, therefore, the conclusion is usually, whether it's stated or implied, that we should get rid of doctrines or at least see doctrines as being very fluid and very optional and this type of things because, you know, people were killed over baptism in the, 
in the Middle Ages or, you know, whatever. Um, there's no question in my mind the church has done terrible things in the past. But I just want you to know something, okay? And I wish I could just tell my Christian friends, especially those that come out with these type of things. My spiritual pedigree is not in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. The remnant of her seed were in hiding. The truth was in hiding during this time. Okay? I don't feel that I have to go to the world and apologize for the, for the sins of Roman Catholicism or even of the Reformation because my self-identity is that I'm part of a remnant that were in hiding during this time. Does this make sense to you? Like, to me, this is a, this is a powerful argument for why we shouldn't be involved in these sort of, like, I don't know, self-flagellating Christian, post-Christian, whatever they are, gurus. Um, they simply have no Christian identity like the Adventist identity. The Adventist identity is that of a remnant coming out of hiding post-1798 that would keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I don't see why we have anything to apologize for that. I really don't. I wasn't around, and I wasn't a part, and I'm not the spiritual descendants of the churches that did those things, honestly. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm on a, my favorite place outside the United States in the whole world, and I've been to much of the world. Um, my favorite place is the Waldensian Valleys. Because when I step back into those hills and I think of some of those stories, I find my spiritual roots. They weren't persecuting others. They were being persecuted for simply believing in the Bible, for simply having the faith once delivered to the saints, for simply believing what Jesus believed and teaching what he taught and living like he would live. And um, those are my heroes. That's my spiritual ancestry. And this is what the Seventh-day Adventists began to understand. They began to understand that they were um, predicted in Bible prophecy and they were uh, fulfillment of that Bible prophecy. Now, I want to just spend a few minutes. And I, you know, I sort of ran out of time. I was thinking about all this. I thought, you know, what could we, what could we talk about as far as threats to Adventist energy? I thought I'd just throw in a couple of things from the early Adventist movement. Um, history, because I like history. I think history is a great teaching learning tool, um, which I think has some relevance today, okay? Threats to this Adventist identity. Um, you've seen how it's developed, right? From a revival movement, loving Jesus, looking for his return, taking care of sin, for confessing sin, to disappointed, broken, must have been a failure, to being picked up by Jesus and saying, no, it wasn't a failure. It's the beginning, not the end. You're going to prophesy again. To now understanding the sanctuary message, understanding the Sabbath message, understanding the, um, the way those two link together. And it's all part of God's work in the last days. So now, um, as the Adventist church continues to grow, I want to talk about confused authority. Um, because this is, I think, one of the major threats to identity. And I'll, we'll just talk through this very briefly here. Um, and then we'll be wrapping up pretty soon here. Um, Confused authority. In the early Adventist movement, the Bible, and particularly the writings of prophecy, the prophetic books, were the basis 
of the Millerite movement, right? As they came together and began to understand some of the doctrines, even after the Great Disappointment, the, the sanctuary, the Sabbath, say the dead, other, other doctrines, the Bible was still the foundation. Ellen White's writings became, for the small group of people that believed in it, Ellen White's writings became also an authoritative, authoritative source of instruction and guidance. It was, as I mentioned earlier, it was never the origination of doctrinal teachings. It wasn't sometimes, in some instances, a confirmation, but it was not the original view. But there's a group of, of um, Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists nonetheless, who early on began to doubt the inspiration of the visions. And I'm just going to refer to one of these. Um, B.F. Snook and W.H. Brinkerhoff was, was one of the movements that began. This was 1866, so it was a number of years later. I think Snook was one of the ones that got, almost got sent as our first missionary to the, to the outside world, um, outside of North America, as I recall, Snook. But um, thankfully it wasn't. Um, 1866, they wrote a book called The Visions of Mrs. White, Not of God and alleged that many of the things that Ellen White claimed to see in heaven were false or not in accord with descriptions in Scripture. And their views were widely taken up by who? The Advent Christians. Those are the ones who never accepted the sanctuary, the Sabbath, the, the explanation of what happened in October 22, cont continue to set dates and so forth. Um, the Advent Christians rejected the Sabbath and sanctuary message of the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, and this, this took a fair bit of a toll, even among the Seventh-day Adventists, because in 1866, although we had been organized as a church, there was still a lot of disorganization in the church. There were still a lot of scattered groups of believers that weren't a part of any official denomination, not a part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so there were some who were easily pulled away. And, and you know, some of Snook's and Brinkerhoff's arguments were, you know, maybe appealing to people. By the way, they attacked the fact that she was a woman. Um, and... Um, you know, she shouldn't be a prophet because she was a woman, and she shouldn't be teaching because she was a woman. And um, Adventists have not had that kind of a notion about women as um, teachers or prophets. Or <laughs> We've always argued very, and, and, and in fact, in, in the review and other articles, there was plenty of, of arguing the fact that God can call women to prophetic office. That's a biblical thing, and it's happened before, and it's not, not out of line. But... Um, this were some of the attacks that were made against Ellen White and particularly her authority. Now, this is where I have to sort of stop and, and do a little bit of philosophy with you. Um, from what I know, from what I know of Adventist history, the little I know, I'm going to say that I've concluded there's no middle ground in our belief of Adventism. You either believe Adventism and Ellen White is a movement inspired by God and Ellen White is a prophet of God, or the whole thing is evil, sinister, demonic, and a delusion, and we shouldn't have anything to do with Adventism. There's really no way of finding a middle road, friends. Either she's who she claimed to be, or early believers claimed she was, and she did a work she claimed to be, 
where she's an imposter, a deceiver, and it's of the devil. I, am, I cannot comprehend why someone would remain an Adventist while rejecting the writings of Sister White. I couldn't. And to be honest with you, some of the um, accusations against Ellen White are pretty good accusations against Scripture, too. And that's why Ellen White would make the statement a number of times. The first step is in doubting and rejecting the testimonies, and then they go on to doubt and believe, disbelieve the Bible, and they find themselves right out of Christianity altogether. Um, were it not that in many cases church has become a social club, that would happen more often. Some people like their veggie links, and they're going to stay in the Adventist church even though they don't believe anything the Adventist church teaches. But I'm going to tell you here, for my personal, my personal conclusion, I came to this. I struggled. You know, I think we should all, if we haven't struggled with our identity, we probably need to, you know? And there was a time as a young 21-year-old, 22-year-old, I started thinking, well, I never really thought, I never, I never asked any questions. Why do I believe that? And then the critics come along and they say, and you have to decide, either it's, Either it's of God or it's not. Now I want to go one step further. Because of how I have seen the Seventh-day Adventist message thematically taught throughout the Scriptures, This is my own conclusion. If I were to decide that Adventism is a fraud, that it's not true, my honest conclusion is I couldn't even remain a Christian. I couldn't. I mean, there's just too much. When you talk about pieces of the puzzle, if you get a thousand pieces of the puzzle, there's a lot of connections there, right? When you you study Daniel Revelation and you see how Adventist doctrines and even the gift of prophecy and the predicted role of Ellen White is intertwined and interlinked throughout the Scripture over and over and over and over again, like a thousand-piece puzzle with all those interlocking pieces. I can't just pull out one piece and say I don't believe it. If I'm not an Adventist, friends, I'm not a Christian. I would just be one of these, I'll tell you what I'd be, I'd be an emergent church probably person. You know, it's just, we're all on a spiritual journey. It's your journey that's important. That's what's inspired. Whatever God or power, universe that's out there. I mean, either that or not spiritual at all, but I mean, you, the, it, either the Bible's right or it's not. And I can find no consistent way of harmonizing the scriptures. From what I know, and I don't know a lot, from what I know, I can find no consistent way to harmonize the scriptures except through Adventism. And my faith in the word of God would have to suffer if I were to reject the prophecies and the understanding of scripture. So all I'm saying is for me, it's all or nothing. I'm either all in or I'm all out. Um, 
And so when Snook and Bringerhoff and these others criticize Ellen White, unfortunately, they, they were choosing to join a much more populous group of people, the Advent Christians. They were choosing the popular side. You know, today that group is still about the same number they've always had, 25,000 or so of them. And there's 17 million and counting or whatever it is, Seventh-day Adventists, because the power of the message of God is, and the Word of God is in the message that Adventism has been taking to the world in the last number of years. In the 1970s, and I'm just skipping through, we could talk about many critics of authority, and I'm maybe focusing too much on Ellen White, not on the biblical authority, but um, I just think you should be aware of this. As young people, this is an important threat to your identity because I believe if, if people can undermine your faith in Ellen White, they have essentially undermined your faith in Adventism because they're going to do it. They don't just do it by saying, oh, no, you know, Ellen White, you know, said we should sleep at the window open. That's, that's baloney. That's not what they're going to talk about. They're going to say, Ellen White fabricated the whole excuse about October 22 because she didn't want to have egg on her face. It's called historical revisionism. But it strikes at the very core of Adventist identity. This is the very first vision Ellen White ever received wasn't her trying to invent something. She didn't want to tell it because it was going contrary to what people believed. Anyway, um, William Peterson, Donald McAdams, Walter Ray documented in the 1970s sources of the Conflict of Ages series. They concluded, for example, that a minimum of 23 sources were used from the desi- for the Desire of Ages, including the works of fiction Ellen White borrowed from in order to tell the story of Jesus. And the, the, the assumption was made or pervade that if sources were borrowed from, which in the 1970s, like in 2013, some of which might be illegal, that Ellen White must not have really been a prophet. Those visions she saw, they were just made up. And then she went and found good books and copied from them. Okay. Um, Ronald Numbers documented, and he spent a lot of his life documenting the sources of Ellen White's health materials. She borrowed from someone else. Now, one thing that they've never been able to show, not once, and if they could, they would, nothing Ellen White ever did as far as literary borrowing violated the ethics or the laws of that time. In fact, it was considered, a, it was considered an honor if another author borrowed your work in that day. Um, no one's ever accused her of doing something illegal. Secondly, the denial of her inspiration on these grounds would also implicate the Bible. And I hope this doesn't shake your foundation, your belief in the Bible. But the Bible writers also borrowed from non-inspired sources, even fictional. Jesus himself told a fictional story to illustrate truth, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That was a common, cultural, known story in the culture of his time. Moses, in his laws that were given by God, feigned sarcasm here because I believe they were, he borrowed from the code of Hammurabi, which he had studied as an Egyptian. Eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, almost word for word, plagiarism. So do we throw out the Bible? Or do we recognize that the difference between a prophet and a non-profit 
is that the prophet is led by God to the right material from sources, perhaps, at times to borrow. Do you realize how many medical things Ellen White could have borrowed from that she didn't? I mean, smoking cigarettes is good for your lungs. Over and over and over. And, you know, I was, I was in a lecture not too long ago, a couple of years ago. I was in a lecture, and the professor was saying, hey, you know, Ellen White and the big things in her medical things, she was right. There were some details. We shouldn't worry about the details. They might have been wrong. And he gave an example of how Ellen White was wrong. She borrowed some information from medical things at the time, like, like your pores, your skin is one of the ways the body gets rid of toxins. And I'm listening to this lecture, and I'm thinking, man, in the 1970s, my parents were doing stop smoking programs and doing wet sheet packs, and the sheets were turning yellow with nicotine from the skin. So what are you talking about? Like, this is not scientifically. So I went online. It took me like three minutes. And thankfully, I shared this with this professor, and he was very appreciative and open. He wasn't really attacking on white. He was just a little misled. Um, it took me about three minutes to show they have patches you can put on your skin or on a child's skin, take it off after 24 hours. They can tell you almost the number of cigarettes smoked in their presence, secondhand smoke, by how much has come through their body and out onto the skin on this patch. Like, Ellen White wasn't wrong. You can't just, you can't just make that up. Now, you could make it up, I mean, but you can't just select in the in 1800s all, from all of the quacked ideas out there and only get the ones that are right. Like, I don't care if she repeated something someone else said or not. She was led by God to repeat the things that were appropriate to repeat. The same with Moses. The same with, well, Jesus was God. I mean, I don't know how that... Is Jesus inspired? I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't need to be inspired. But you understand what I'm saying. Borrowing is not a sign of non-inspiration. Unless you're borrowing things that are inaccurate, untrue, or unbiblical. And then it would be, I suppose. Um, so, confused authority. And by the way, as I said, either Ellen White is inspired or she's not. Um, Another group of people were the spiritualizers. Ellen White met these early on in the Adventist history. This was in eastern Maine in 1845. And um, there's another group of people. I, have not, I haven't mentioned these guys yet, the spiritualizers. They actually spiritualized or allegorized away heaven and God and Jesus and the Advent hope. And their argument was that Jesus had come in 1844. October 22, he had come. You just had to be spiritual to perceive it. He had come spiritually into their hearts. This was the spiritualizers. And in, early, in her early writings, you'll sometimes hear her referring to spiritualism. <laughs> and we sort of confuse that with the spiritualism she would later write about, meaning like, you know, communicating with the dead or that type of thing. In her early writings, like in 1845, 1846, when she talks about spiritualism, she's talking about this movement, the movement that would allegorize the Bible, that would make it all sort of just spiritual or... or um, or um, allegorized. She writes in 18, early writings, 77 and 78, I have frequently been falsely charged with teaching views peculiar to spiritualism. But before the editor of the Daystar ran into that delusion, the Lord gave me a view of the, of the sad and desolating effects that would be produced upon the flock. 
by him and others in teaching the spiritual views. The spiritual views are the views that Jesus came spiritually if we had known it in October 22, 1844. Um, and she then began to have visions of Jesus as a real person and talking with her and um, having a personality. And she says, I have often seen the lovely Jesus, that he is a person. I asked him if his father was a person and had a form like himself, said Jesus, I am in the express image of my father's person. I have often seen that the spiritual view took away all the glory of heaven and that in many minds the throne of David and the lovely person of Jesus have been burned up in the fire of spiritualism. I have seen that some who have been deceived and led into this error will be brought out into the light of truth, but it will be almost impossible for them to get entirely rid of the deceptive power of spiritualism. Such should make thorough work in confessing their errors and leaving them forever. Um, I want to share with you this from um, Great Controversy. Um, page 598 and 599. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its what? Obvious. Obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. So if it's a leopard with four heads, you know it's a symbol or figure, right? They don't have them in the Chattanooga Zoo, so it's probably not really an uh, actual thing. That's a symbol or figure. If it's not, if it's not uh, going to do damage to the Bible, injury, uh, illogical injustice, then it, the Bible's meant to be taken as it reads. And I'm telling you, there's too many, even pastors today, who want to think of some fanciful, allegorical interpretation of the Bible. The Bible's meant to be read like it reads. That's all, that's all it is. Christ has given the promise. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. If men would take the Bible, but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad, and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. I want to go through one more challenge. It's, oh my, it's time to quit. Can I go through this really quickly? Um, if, if you leave, I can't, but if you stay here, I can. Um, social gospel. This came in through our identity through John Harvey Kellogg. In 1897, he declared much to the consternation of Adventist leaders that the work of the sanitarium was of an undenominational, unsectarian, humanitarian, and philanthropic nature. When he stated that the sanitarium was not in the business of presenting anything that is peculiarly said of the Adventist in doctrine, Kellogg placed the sanitarium on a path that diverged from traditional Adventism. And I'm here to tell you that today, in many cases, among Adventists, there's the same desire to simply have a social gospel. We feed the sick, um, feed the hungry, we heal the sick. Those are all good things to do, by the way. But that's not our identity of what we're here for. We have a message and a mission and to tell the world about Jesus and his soon return. Kellogg advocated a social gospel without sectarian trammels, as he would say it. He conceived of the church as a benevolent organization and argued that it was, quote, more important for a man to be a good Samaritan than to be a good theologian, end of quote. He wanted to, quote, rescue lost souls, not teach theology, and believed that humanitarian work would win more converts to the Adventist cause than all the church's ministers combined. What cause? You understand? What's the point of winning people to your cause if you don't have a message to win them to? Are you with me in that? I understand where he's coming from, but and we, can, we can see the temptation of that view. But if, you're, if all you're winning them to is a social club to help other people, the United Way can do that. The Red Cross can do that. Anybody can do that. God's called His remnant last day people for a special work. And that's not limited by just social work. 
In the judgment, Kellogg argued, the great question would not be what a person preached, but what he had done to help someone in need. I want to just give a little interjection here. I'm not against helping the sick or the poor. Um, But when Jesus comes a second time, remember, and he puts the sheep on one side, the right side, and the goats on the left side. He says, come to the sheep, come enter my, uh, you know, what does he say? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you, for you, for I was sick and you helped me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was in prison, you visited me. What do the, what do the sheep say? Do they say, yes, I'm glad we did that. What do they say? When did we ever do that? We did. I want to do, say this respectfully, friends, but the social gospel is simply the left's attempts at legalism. You can be legalist no matter what theological camp you're in, no matter if you're in any camp at all. If you're aware that you're doing these things because this is true religion or whatever the issue is, it's a problem. The sheep don't say, yeah, I remember that. We did that. Mm -hmm. We made it. They are unconscious of the fact that they are doing these deeds for Jesus. The point is that anything, anyone can help meet physical needs, but we've been given a special message to teach. And so I believe our humanitarian work ought to first be the natural outflowing of our love for Jesus and his children. Okay? It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of I'm going to do this. I don't do that. I, you know, pat on my back. But secondly, it should give way to a greater burden to not only save their bodies, but to lead them to eternal life. That's our primary passion is eternity. We're here for a purpose. And uh, Kellogg did not understand that. How do we have a sense of identity? I believe it flows from our mission. Our mission, I believe, comes from our message. And I believe the Adventist message is a biblical message. I want to be passionate about it. I want to share others, share with others, um, what God did in 1844 and what he's been doing since and how it impacts their lives and how we can be ready for a second coming. Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time together, a few minutes to try to gather some bits and pieces from Adventist history. I just want to pray that as we consider our own identity, that you'd help us, help us to have an identity that comes from, ultimately from your word. Um, Thank you for the writings of the scriptures. Thank you for the writings of the spirit of prophecy. Thank you for the understanding, the ability to look back and reach into the past and learn from the past. And I pray that as we move forward, that we might be Seventh-day Adventists with all the confidence in the world that you're leading your people. You're coming soon. And that you want to use us to take your last day message to a dying world. Um, We thank you for this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.